Today's sermon, the title is Merciful Plans for a Messy World. So about 20 years ago, I asked a young Christian woman out for a meeting. And this is where the Gen Z will say, SAS. That's because during the meeting, I asked her if she would be interested to be my girlfriend. And part of my elevator pitch, what did I do? I presented to her my five-year plan. <laughs> and well, it's not exactly a pitch, but it's more of a plan what I hope to achieve in five years from that moment. And you see, it wanted, I wanted to set the direction of my life, and I was hoping to become a missionary down the way. And so it was my East Coast plan. And so if she's not interested in those plans, then perhaps you shouldn't start a relationship, right? And so let me show you a snapshot of the kind of plans I make for myself every year in those days. So this is... Um, okay, keeps going back. Wrong one, uh, wrong plan. Yes, yeah. So this is taken from a color-coded spreadsheet for 2003. That's my plan. And I break down into months and different categories. So obviously, to say the least, this is not a romantic thing to do on your first date. But somehow, by God's grace on that day, I think she must have blinded the girl. Her eyes, they could not see, and ears, they could not hear. <laughs> because despite my geekiness, as well as my foolishness, she actually said yes. <laughs> and about four years later, she became my wife, Esther. Yeah. And so recently, my wife, yeah, I get off this slide, reminded me that, you know the five-year plan? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, do you realize, she said, that none of your plans worked out? <laughs> <laughs> so why did she accept me that day? So she told me herself, she said, because if it's truly God's will, your plans will work out. If it's not, then God's plans will work out. So looking back, I realized that actually I was the one who was blind, not her, because we humans can make all the plans, but only God's plan will prevail. His plan will surely succeed. And then in fact, she continued, my wife, and she told me that, you know, many things happened to us from then to now, you didn't plan for it. And once more, she's right. Because more seriously, from within a few months after showing her my plans, I suffered anxiety attacks for years. So at the early stage, I will wake up and there will be a panic, overwhelming sense of panic gripping my throat. And I started to need to vomit all the time until my throat was bleeding for the exertion. And I couldn't work, and I couldn't tell my parents, couldn't tell my bosses. And I just became a Christian only a year back. And I knew how great and how good my God is. And yet, then my life fell apart. So in my anxious mind, I really wanted to continue to put my faith in Jesus. But my flesh was weak. And many times, I couldn't understand. I really wanted to give up on my faith. I didn't understand what was going on. What's happening? What was Jesus doing in my life? In today's Bible passage, we have come to the point 
to the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul had to answer a few difficult questions concerning God's plan, and specifically God's plan for the Jews. You see, by this time in church history, even though Jesus was a Jew, there were many, many non-Jews, Christians, Gentiles, Gentile Christians, entering the church. So the Jewish church, the Jewish Christians, were fast becoming a minority among the Gentile believers. And so after explaining how great the gospel is in the book of Romans, how great God's faithfulness is in sending Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the world, and how Jesus opened a new way for us to approach God, Paul was expecting these few difficult questions. They will ask him, if this Jesus, he's Jewish, right? He's a saviour. If God planned all this as promised to our Jewish ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then how come the Jews themselves rejected Jesus? What's happening here? It doesn't make sense. Has God failed in his plans to save his people? What's going on? So Paul expected such questions, and rhetorically, he classified them into two types of questions in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 11. The first question, Paul said, I asked them, did God reject his people? And in verse 11, again I asked, did they, the Jews, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? <coughs> Let's take a look at the first question. So, did God reject his people? Now, off the slide. Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Why? Because he gave three supporting evidences. The first argument is Paul himself is a Jew. So, verse 1 says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. There's nothing more Jewish than Paul. And so he said, since he's a Jew physically, ethnic-wise, clearly there are Jews among him who already believe in Jesus the Messiah. So God didn't reject the Jews per se. And secondly, he said, God did not reject those he chose, those he foreknew. So what he's trying to explain is that the Jews of Israel were chosen by God and God is the kind of God who does not change his mind. He's not a man. Those whom he's chosen, he will not reject. <coughs> so at this point, people will argue, wait, if God chose the Jews, if they are chosen people, if he had promised their ancestors, the patriarchs, how come not all of them believe the Jewish Messiah? And this is where the third point comes in. And he says here, God has kept a remnant, a chosen remnant by grace. And he referred to the Old Testament precedents. It was something that already happened before to the Jews. In verse 3, he says here, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. Here is a prophet Elijah. In those days, Elijah was serving this king Ahab, who was turning the whole Israel to worship false gods because his wife imported these foreign gods. And Ahab was trying to kill Elijah. And Elijah ran away. The prophets, the true prophets were killed. And when Elijah tried to turn them back, he couldn't. He ran to God. And in his fatigue, he shouted, God, they have killed everyone. I'm the only one left. And verse 4, how did God reply? What was God's answer to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 who have not bowed 
the knee to Baal. So you see, Paul was quoting this to show that the same thing, the same pattern that God is doing is now happening in the New Testament times. Because he explained in verse 5, he says here, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And how do we know that? So although there are fewer Christians compared to the Gentile believers at this time of the letter, if you look carefully, there were thousands and thousands of Jewish Christians among them. You see, the apostles, every single one of the apostles were Jew. Paul is Jewish. And when Peter preached his first sermon in the book of Acts, 3,000 Jews believed. And later on, as we proceed over the books of Acts, by the time the apostle James, he confirmed, many thousands more joined them. God had not rejected his chosen people. But of course, not all the Jews believed in the gospel because many wanted to kill Paul for preaching it. And so those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Jews, they were a subset. That's why they're called a remnant, a subset. And this subset, on their own, you have to be clear, they would have never believed in Jesus. Because not because they are more righteous than those who did not believe but because of God's grace that they could believe. It was just as bad as everyone else. So Romans 3, verse 10, the next slide shows us, it says, it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Every single one, those who believe and those who did not believe were equally unrighteous by default. It's only God's grace that they turned their hearts to believe. And that's why in verse 6 it says, next slide, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. And if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What is it then, by default, they ask ourselves, that the Jews could not believe? Why couldn't they believe by default? Let me show you the next picture. And the next picture is a familiar sight for those high-rise dwellers in Singapore, for them, 85% of us, for those who live in the landed properties, too bad for you. <laughs> It's a familiar site because it's the aircon latch, right? It's the space that you pay for, but you can never use, okay? But it's meant for the aircon compressors. But sometimes you can find unexpected things on the aircon latch. Next picture. In this picture, we found a dog and it came out and played on the aircon latch. And the next picture, it has a seven-year-old who climbed out to play because his other siblings were too old and they just ignored him, so he was so bored, he came out and started spraying water from the aircon latch. But thankfully, nothing happened for both these cases. Both the dog and the boy were rescued. But he got off the slide for a while. But for myself, <laughs> one day I found something on my aircon latch, much less dramatic. I found a rag from upstairs, dropped onto my aircon latch. And so I tried to remove the, the rag using a pole in Teochew, we call it the arse hair. You know, the one that you have to hook up your bamboo poles. So I tried to push very hard, but it was impossible to get the cloth out. Why? Because it was there for a long time. It was hardened. It molded onto the ledge. <laughs> it was baked under the sun, hardened by the heat. <laughs> so I tried to bend the cloth, but it cracked. The only way to do so is what? You had to pour water, right? Soften it and then you could remove it. So that's what Paul was saying in the following verse, verse 7. He says, What then? 
What the people of Israel sought so earnestly did not obtain, the elects among them did, but the others were hardened. And how were the Jews hardened? So they no longer could respond to God's Saviour. Next slide. It is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes they could not see, and ears they could not hear to this very day. So when we read how God prevented the Israelites from responding to the gospel, we must be very careful. See, this hardening of their hearts, we could have a wrong understanding that the Jews were perfectly fine and innocent, and God is cruel, and so hardened some group so they cannot respond, and then the other group he didn't harden. It's not true, because you must understand from the whole book of Romans, unable to perceive the goodness of the gospel of Jesus, the correct way of understanding is because they have been sinning against God, every one of them. And because they have been sinning against God, the result of that sin is a punishment. Hardening is the punishment, the further hardening of their hearts. And next slide. And that's why we see in verse 9, Paul quoted David, he says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. You see, this word retribution means it's a punishment. God gave them over to their sin. When they sinned, they hardened their own hearts. And God gave them over so their hearts become harder and harder. And what about this table? So the table is a symbol of security. A table of, you know, you come home, you sit, and you eat, you can rest. But can you imagine coming home to your table and suddenly it flipped open and became a mousetrap? And that is what happened. The very thing they wanted to rest in, the security, it became a trap. And the very Christ, the rock for their lives, the stability, the cornerstone, has become a stumbling block for them. They will trip over. And so, but what exactly is this stumbling block? So to understand this, we have to understand the big picture of God's salvation plan. And throughout the whole book of Romans, we have seen some of these. First, we need to rewind to the ancestor number one. Ancestor number one is Abraham. So God chose Abraham by grace. Not because Abraham was stronger, healthier, or younger, or more sinless. By grace, God chose Abraham and taught him how to walk by faith on God and God alone. Despite him himself being old and his wife being old, both of them from 80 to 100 years old, by faith, they could still have an offspring in their golden years. So the first slide here, the first one. Because Abraham saw his body as dead, but he trusted in God's promise, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, verse 3. And then in Romans, the next one, in 10, Paul explained that right from the beginning, God wanted us to have faith in him and not in our own righteousness. And to help Abraham's understand, uh, descendants understand this, he gave them the law of Moses. And so he says here, Moses is quoted Moses, the person who does these things of the law will live by them. In other words, if 
they will be able to follow the law of Moses perfectly. They will live and won't die. But, as we saw in Romans chapter 7, the problem is they have sin in their hearts, and so they can never reach the righteousness of God. So because of our sinful nature, we can't obey God's law, and so we die. So this plan was intentionally set up for them to realize that they are dead in their sins, just as how Abraham was dead in his body. And so anybody who tried to establish their own righteousness will only realize how impossible it is. And then they will want to put their faith in whatever God gives them as righteousness, which is Christ. The next one, verse 4, Christ is a culmination of the law. All the things the law says comes and reaches in its finality, fulfillment in Christ. <laughs> so that there may be righteousness for everyone who, who what? Who believes, just like Abraham. Romans 10, verse 4, which you saw last week. And so, you click one more time, just once. And there's an animation, and voila. <laughs> so all the three covenants combines in the new covenant, collapse, because everything points to Jesus Christ. There's only one plan. And the law then was given to the Jews as a privilege. Because when they have the law, it prepares the heart to receive Jesus. They can recognize why Jesus must die on the cross. But because of the stubbornness of the Jews, they tried harder and harder to establish their own righteousness. That's why they rejected Jesus. They thought that the law of Moses was their table of security. But it turns out to be a snare, a trap. They thought all these righteousness that they can develop is their rock, but it turns out to be a stumbling block. So Jesus, their saviour, shows them they are hard-hearted. They have hardened their hearts. And just like the cloth under the sun, the disobedience of the Jews led to their hearts being hardened. And just like the dry cloth, it cannot produce its own moisture. You, someone has to pour water from outside. And so the Jews' hearts, they have hardened it and they can never soften their own hearts. There's no way. It's too dry and hard. And so as a punishment, God chose to give them over to their sin, not to soften their hearts. <coughs> Yet, by grace, they don't deserve this group. God chose them and he pours in this Holy Spirit to soften their hearts and he, then they can, by grace, receive Jesus as their saviour. So that is why only a remnant can believe by grace. So at this point, 10 o'clock in the morning, you may be asking me, Pastor, you know, I'm a Chinese man. What does this have to do with me, right? <laughs> My reply to you is everything. So let me explain. See, there was a New York Times article titled A Secret Society of the Starving. So the journalist in 2002, Mim Udovic, she investigated the world of eating disorders. This is when a person has an unhealthy relationship with food. In other words, 
he or she wants to lose weight so much that she cannot eat. She refuses to eat. Or, at times, they will binge eating, eat as much as she can, and then regurgitate everything out, purge it out, so the body will not put on weight. And this is a highly complex mental illness. Not something to be laughed at. And it leads to huge health problems to the sufferers because they get thinner and thinner. But with the arrival of the internet, this whole movement got worse. Why? Because people who suffer from anorexia, or what you call bulimia too, they can go online and they can find fellow pro-anorexia. In short, they call themselves pro-ana. There in the online community, they can remain anonymous. They can hide their identity. But at the same time, they can find a community to encourage one another to keep going on in this disorder. So first, I must confess, I'm not an expert in this area. I'm just citing from the article. But there's something that I picked up from the article which is very uncanny. You see, they interviewed one anorexic person and asked how would she feel? And this is how she replies. <coughs> she said, like if you do wrong, and then you eat, then you sin. But if she meets her weight goals, then she is clean. By slipping down, she removes her own sins. It is so uncanny to see the whole movement is dressed up in religious language. This is the language of self-salvation. And then there also there's a website for the pro Anna. They call themselves the Thin Commandments. It says, if thou art thin, thou art attractive. Thou shalt not eat without feeling guilty. Thou shalt not eat fattening food without punishing thyself afterward. Being thin and not eating are signs of true willpower and success. This habit is self-destructive because in the mind of a person, he or she is always too fat. In her mind, she will look for flaws, look for potential areas where convince herself that she's still overweight, even though she is underweight. Like a perfectionist, she is never thin enough. She is never satisfied. But what is the driving force, let's ask ourselves, what is the driving force for such a habit? One website, the pro Anna website, it carries a creed. Next slide. It's called the Anna Creed. It says here, I believe in control. That the only force mighty enough to bring order into the chaos that is my world. I believe that I am the most vile, worthless, and useless person ever to have existed on this planet. Friends, the heart of self-salvation is self-hate. The heart of self-salvation is self-hate. We are all addicted to some form of self-salvation. Can you get off the slide? What is common, we ask ourselves, between the one who's addicted to sex and drugs 
and to the one who denies all pleasures. What is the common thing between the alcoholic and the workaholic? Between the atheist and the religious salad? What is common in all these cases is our inability to love and accept ourselves of who we are. Because we are always afraid. We are afraid that people will find out one day that we are vile, worthless, and useless to have ever existed on this planet. And that's why we keep proving to others and to ourselves that we are worthy of love. That's why we invent all these laws and then we become slaves to our very own laws. We develop our law to build our own sense of self-righteousness. It is so addictive. Laws that say when we achieve a certain way, we accomplish certain things, when we possess certain things, when we experience certain pleasures, then somehow, somewhere, in the whole corner of the internet universe, someone will say we are okay. And we feel good for the few minutes. And so in our self-hate, we always strive for perfection because we keep looking for our own flaws. We cannot accept grace for ourselves. We magnify our flaws beyond its proportion. And like the Jews, we are imprisoned by our own laws. The same trap, the same snare, even for Christians. Because we can claim that we know God, but the moment we can't let go of that law of our life, it shows that we maybe we're not truly walking in God's love. So if only, if only, friends, we could stand amazed once more by how much God loves us, that despite you being vile, worthless, and useless, God still loves you. That is the gospel. That you stand amazed at this immeasurable love of God. That why would He love me, a person like me? And that out of the vast ocean of God's love, our Heavenly Father is willing to pay any price, any price to bring us home, including sacrificing His own Son. For God says over here, All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Will we let go of the laws that we wrote for ourselves? And once we get his love, we can only say, Amen, Lord, Amen. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thank you so much for softening my dry and hardened hearts. Thank you for your grace and mercy. The Apostle Paul, he clearly understood this. That's why he wrote the book of Romans. And he answered the following question. The second question is this. So did those Jews who hardened their hearts, did they stumble beyond recovery? Is there no hope for them? And Paul's answer is, certainly not. Not at all. <laughs> and he gave three supporting answers. Firstly, from verse 11. You see, the Jews' rejection of Jesus actually led to the Gentiles' acceptance of Jesus. So, for example, in the book of Acts, we always see Paul and his missionary friends, when they arrive in any town, they'll go to the Jewish synagogue, preach the gospel to the Jews. But when the Jews rejected the gospel, 
Then somehow next door, there are Gentiles that will receive it and they will be joyful because they receive it. Because God used that message and shown mercy to the Gentiles next door. And secondly, in verse 13, while Paul was sent by God to preach to the Gentiles, he also had another motive. He was hoping that the Gentiles, when they believe, they could arouse envy in the Jews. The Jews would go, how come these guys got the Holy Spirit and we don't? How come they have, they have forgiveness and we don't? So he was hoping that they make them envious and they want to believe. And thirdly, in verse 16, Paul gave two illustrations why the Jews will one day believe in Jesus. So the first one is the offering of the dough. So he was using the custom, the Jewish custom, when they make dough, right? <laughs> I speak as if I'm a baker, I'm not. They will take a small portion out and then they dedicate it to God. And they consider this small portion sanctified, holy. But in hope that the rest of the dough will also be holy. And that's the same thing. He says, if a small portion is considered holy, the Jews, the apostles, many more, the Jews will also be holy together with the Gentiles. And similarly, he gave another example, which is what he called the roots and the branches, that if the roots of a tree is holy, then the whole plant will also be holy because the foundation of the Jews was built on the patriarchs. And so the rest of the branches shall be holy too. And so because they are all from the same plant, <coughs> but for this second allegory, let me take a sip of my drink. Here, Paul explained in greater details. He said, in the, you see, in the ancient world, for agriculturists, when the old tree is not bearing fruit, what do you do? You find another plant, a wild shoot, and you graft it in the old tree so that it can restart the old tree. As the wild shoot comes in, it draws nutrients from the old tree, the wild shoot bears fruit and hopefully the rest of the tree will bear fruit together. The next slide, you can take a look at this, and it's how it works. So the wild shoot is grafted in. You make a slice, and it ties together, and it absorbs nutrients, and the, old, the new wild shoot will bear fruit. And in this allegory, the old tree is Israel. The branches that were not bearing fruit, they were broken off. They were like the Jews who refused to believe. The Gentile Christians, the other wild shoots, they are grafted in to the old vine and they bear fruit. And as a result, the whole vine will begin to bear fruit together. <coughs> so from this allegory comes one warning and another application. The first warning, verse 18 to 22, if you are referring to your Bibles, Paul told the Gentiles not to be arrogant because you are the wild shoot. That although you are the one bearing fruit and the Jews are not, there's nothing to be arrogant about it because salvation is by grace and so no one can boast about it. Any boasting will be ridiculous because ultimately, the wild shoot is still being supported by the original Jewish tree. And in other words, we Gentile Christians, we cannot be so proud to think that we are the only ones who understand the gospel and we condemn the Jews. No hope for them. 
In fact, we should always remember that Jesus is a Jew, the apostles are Jew. We don't have to become Jewish, but we are thankful for them. We are humbly grafted in by grace. Then for the application in verse 23 to 24, that if the Jews do not persist in the unbelief, Paul says, they can be easily grafted back. Because if the wild shoots can be grafted in, how much more the original plan they can grafted in back? You see, he's saying that the Jews, when God softened their heart, it's very easy for them to see the gospel. So I was trying to once read the Bible with my mom. The first time I did, <laughs> I was foolish enough to open up book of Matthew chapter 1. And we started reading together the genealogy, the Jewish genealogy in Chinese. After going through three or four verses, she stopped, she went to the kitchen and started cooking. <laughs> but if you are going to show the genealogy of Jesus to a Jew, the Jew will look at the names and say, wow, these are my akong and my ama. These are my ancestors. It's about me. They have the worldview. They have the Old Testament. They have the laws. God has really prepared for them to receive the gospel. So it's so much easier for them to be grafted back in. So that means there's nothing to boast. You see, everybody is in there by grace. And so in summary, God has only one plan. One plan for the Jews and one plan for the Gentiles. The same plan, all to be grafted into the same tree of Jesus with the patriarchs and the apostles as the same root. <coughs> so in his commentary on Romans, John Stott, he explained that since the Holocaust, unfortunately, the Jews have demanded that Christians should stop evangelizing to them. And many Christians felt bad, naturally, because it was the Christians in Germany that persecuted them. And so many Christians felt embarrassed that even some theologians among them, they begin to develop what they call a two-covenant theology. So to them, they think that God maybe have one plan for the Jews. They don't need to really come to Jesus. They will follow all the promises from the Old Testament. And the Gentiles will follow all the New Testament. So they split. But this is bad because Paul's analogy of the one tree <coughs> is for all to come together, together with the gospel of Jesus. The same plan for the Jews and the same plan for the Gentiles. We are called to humbly evangelize to them. And we also read in chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, it says here, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That's the definition for all here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are freely justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So how does God intend to save both the Jews and the Gentiles? <coughs> how does it look like? And he explained the following diagram. He says, firstly, because of the hardening of the Jewish hearts, God now shows mercy to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles who were disobedient, they believe and now accept the gospel. As a result, this caused envy. It makes the Jew envious. And so the Jews among them, some will turn to Christ. And because the Jews who were hardened and now have softened, 
how much more they'll bring more blessings to the rest of the world. And then they bring the blessings to the world, greater blessings, till the full number of Gentiles that were appointed for salvation are saved in verse 25. And this goes on back and forth until all Israel will be saved. The word all Israel here, we must be careful, it doesn't mean every single Jew. It's not possible. Because Paul already said there will be a remnant. What he meant is that there will be a large number of gathering that way more than what we had initially of the remnant in Paul's time. There are way more people coming to Christ, the Jews. And so in this plan, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, everyone is saved simply by the mercy of God and not by the merits of your own. And verse 30 to 32 says this, And just as you who were one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they may too receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Which means everyone at one point was disobedient and everyone receives God's mercy. So for God has bound everybody, everyone, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So the question is, what do we learn from all this? So personally for myself, when I look back at my life, I had hated God and Christians. And all my life, it was as messy as my hair. But God still showed me mercy. Because in my first job, the cubicle that was given to me, I took over the cubicle of my primary school friend. What are the chances? Because my primary school friend wanted to go for a new job and I took over her cubicle and she's a Christian. And she was the one we got in contact that brought me to this church where I heard the gospel. And in my workplace then, the team, there was one co-worker and he turns out to be the husband of another junior college friend. <laughs> and so he knew me and he took me under his wing and for one whole year, every week before work, we will go and pray for one whole year, every week, to strengthen my faith. I could not have planned for all these. I could not have planned for my own salvation. I didn't even want to be saved. God kept sending more and more people to share His love and His truth with me. But after becoming a Christian, I suffered anxiety attacks. And in those days, I was hurting like an animal. And in those chaotic times, God still has a plan. He was why? He was using that time to empty out all my plans that I made for myself. All the plans that I made to myself because I promised myself that I'll attain certain happiness that I want. He was taking out all those plans and then he replaces them with his plans for me. And in those turbulent times, God was gently healing me, cleansing the mess in my heart. And some of the mess, of course, was due to the hurt that people have done to me. But a lot of times, the mess was for my own sins and my own disobedience. So looking back, a Gentile like me had to be humbled by God 
in order to experience his mercy for me. See, those dark times were absolutely necessary for me to walk through. Why? Because my eyes were so blind that only when it's dark, only when my pride has been dimmed down, then I could see the light of Jesus. And while this is applicable for individuals, it is the same dynamic for the whole world. Because sometimes when you turn on TV or on YouTube or news, it seems that humanity is stuck. We are stuck in a great mess. It seems that we are running out of ideas how to solve the problems of the world. Because no matter how much money we pour into the problem, and no matter how many weapons we make, these problems keep coming back. And so in these dark times, however, there are sparks of light here and there across the world. Jews are turning to Christ all over the world. They call themselves the Messianic Jews. In 2012, it was estimated about 350,000 Jews, 350,000 Jews turned to Christ. That's how many in the world right now. And then we Gentiles are coming to Christ in waves, even in the very hard grounds. It's estimated that in communist China, now there are about 70 million Christians. And the fastest growing church in the world, where do you think it is? It's in Iran, growing at 19.6% annually. And the second fastest church growing in the world, where do you think it is? Afghanistan. Why? The Iranians are bringing the gospel to the Afghans. No one expected all this. No one planned for all this, except our Lord Jesus alone. Because our plans mess up the world. Until we see that, then we can appreciate that God has merciful plans for a messy world. It is the same plan for the Jews, the same plan for the Gentiles, the plan for all to come his, to know his mercy. Romans 11.32 says, For God has bound everyone, everyone over to disobedience that causes our mess, so that he may have mercy on them all. Let us go to God in prayer. Dear God, we stand amazed at the depth of your wisdom and the riches of your knowledge. For how unsearchable are your judgments and your paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known your mind that he could be your counsellor? And who has ever given to you that you should repay him? So please help us see your mercy for us once more. And so in view of your great mercy, may we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, for from you and through you and for you are all things. To you, Father, Son, and Spirit, be the glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.